the idea that social media is is unregulated by the law or by civil society and people's behavior and their responses to it is without foundation. It's not, I mean, these things are new, but the old laws still apply to them. <laughs> and, and the idea that somehow government is a benign caretaker of these things as opposed to broader society and, and needs to impose that on these platforms specifically is, uh, it, it's pretty troubling because there are, there are mechanisms which, if people are patient, these things get, get regulated through. If, if people are defaming people on the internet, you can sue them. One of the conclusions I'm coming to is, on this is that the greater threat to democracy, when we're talking about it, and it's not that there isn't one from people spreading lies and spreading rumors and, and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of threats to democracy, if you want to put it that way. But the greater threat to democracy is not from those who are misusing it by behaving irresponsibly. It might very well be from those who wish to, su to suppress speech, right? The people who are currently have the angel's halo on their head and have claimed the moral high ground. You know, it's, they're treading into a very, very dangerous area. Hi, I'm Peter Stockland. Welcome to WordWork. On this episode, we hear from Peter Menzies, a Canadian particularly well-positioned to engage the now roiling debate, pitting free speech against increased government regulation of the internet and social media. From his start at a local newspaper, Menzies went on to become a national newspaper award-winning journalist, and ultimately publisher of the Calgary Herald which at the time was one of Western Canada's largest and among Canada's most profitable newspapers. He then spent 10 years in the bureaucratic thickets as vice president for the CRTC, Canada's broadcast regulator, just as wireless service and social media were exploding. I started by asking him about a public policy paper released in January, partly funded by the federal government, that calls, among other things, for establishment of a national responsibility regulator to oversee internet and social media platform providers. Well, thank you so much, uh, Peter Menzies, for, for joining us uh, on the word work. Uh, appreciate you, uh, you taking the time out of your busy day. Yeah, I'll just say for uh, those listening, Peter and I have known each other, been good friends, and uh, worked uh, together on many occasions and fought many battles together. So if it sounds like we're in uh, somewhat spectacularly surprising agreement. Uh, it's actually not that surprising <laughs> at all. We're, we're like old chess players. We've known each other's moves for a very long time, <laughs> I think, right? But anyway, welcome and, and thanks again for, for joining us. Oh, well, thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm, I'm flattered to be joining your such esteemed company. Exactly. Uh, although you know how untrue that is, but <laughs> nevertheless, you're, you're free to say it, at least, uh, still in this country, at least. Absolutely. So, so what I uh, wanted to just go through is, uh, first of all, starting with a, a report by a public policy forum on the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression. And then I wanted to 
um, talk a, a bit more broadly about freedom of speech and, and the way language is being used these days, particularly drawing on your experience, um, both a long time experience in the newspaper business, a publisher of the, of the Calgary Herald, and then the years that you spent with the uh, CRTC in a, in a senior commissioner's role, looking at the regulatory dimension of, of speech, particularly obviously within, uh, within the context of broadcasting. So uh, I wanted to just start by turning to this, this report, the final report from the uh, Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression, which um, has a bit of a Canadian name even in it. <laughs> I don't think you'd have to identify it as Canadian uh, to have a Commission on Democratic Expression. Everybody would know. And, and it's proposal for a six-step program to protect democratic expression online. When I, I saw that, I, I thought of Daniel Henninger, a, a columnist with the Wall Street Journal, had a column the other day about why is it when certain people talk about democratic expression, they mean their democratic expression, not our democratic expression. But anyway, we, we, we will maybe dig into that. But I wanted to just start. One of, its, one of the commission's key recommendations slash findings is they say, we find fault with the notion that platforms, that is internet platforms, are neutral disseminators of information. Platforms curate content to serve their commercial interests and so must assume greater responsibility for the harms they amplify and spread. Government must play a more active role in furthering the cause of democratic expression and protecting Canadians. And it struck me, and I'd just like to get your response, your thoughts on this, the kind of cart instead of the horse formulation of that, that governments um, must play a role in democratic expression instead of understanding that governments are an outcome of democratic expression. Uh, what, what's, your, what's your thought on that? You've read the report, I think. You, you're familiar with it. Is that a serious problem within the report, this idea that governments must protect expression rather than respond to it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I tried not to have a knee-jerk reaction to that when it, the report first came out and tried to think about it for a while. And the longer I think about it, the more, I don't want to be inflammatory, but the more it sounds like newspeak in, in terms of that. And the more, to me, it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of what the foundation of democracy is. The foundation of democracy isn't journalism and it's not government. It, it's free speech and free expression and freedom of conscience. And those are all human rights. And the, the very idea that people could so casually in the defense of democracy decide that the only way democracy can survive would be through controlling and subjugating these human rights. <laughs> and there's something very backward with that. And I find it quite troubling. And I mean, that's not to say that a lot of the things that occur on social media aren't reprehensible. Um, I used to hear a lot of things in coffee shops that were reprehensible too. Um, and the speed with which things can spread on social media is, you know, I think a matter of concern. But the idea that going forward, the only way to protect democracy is for people to speak with permission of the state is stunning. <laughs> it's breathtaking. And, and, and the self-styled defenders of democracy, the media, don't seem to catch that one at all. I mean, a few do, but most don't. You, now, again, uh, 
you've you had ex long ex ten years of experience in a forum where where the state through a regulatory agency does actually control speech, but within the context of limited ability to broadcast that speech, right? Like it, it, the control of television and uh, <clears throat> radio was based on the idea that there's only so many channels, can only, and, and it isn't fair, it ultimately isn't fair in a democratic society that anyone have a monopoly on those things. So there needs to be some regulatory framework around that. But one of the things that they recommend is the establishment by parliament of a statutory duty to act responsibly. And it, when I read that sentence, it kind of reminded me when I was a kid, another guy said to me, act normal. And I thought, how can you act normal? If you're acting, you're not normal. And if you're normal, you don't need to act. And how do you impose from by the state a statutory duty to act responsibly. Surely that's a function of citizenship uh, to inculcate the sense of responsibility. Am I being unfair here? Am I picking? Am I nitpicking at this report and and not giving it giving it its due in terms of what it's actually trying to achieve? And I'm asking you that as someone who has had to grapple with these questions in the context of broadcast. Well. I mean, first of all, I mean, the duty to act responsibly, I mean, that's a duty that's bestowed upon all of us in life. And it's bestowed upon the commercial sector too, right? And it's generally managed by your duty to act responsibly is to act responsibly in a way that for these large companies maintains their shareholder value. There's all kinds of existing checks and balances on how you act responsibly. There's, there's all kinds of civil law. There have been controls on speech for many years in terms of prohibitions of civil and criminal law. There is a hate speech, there's an existing hate speech law in Canada, which was very contentious at the time, but set the bar rightfully very high. In other words, you, you may express an opinion about anything, but you may not call for harm to be done to others. You cannot say people rise up and hit Presbyterians with sticks or you know uh, anything anything like that you can't shout fire in a crowded theater you can't incite riots and that sort of stuff there's, so there's all of those still apply to social media the idea that social media is is unregulated by the law or by civil society and people's behavior and the responses to it is is without foundation right um it's not I mean, these things are new, but the old laws still apply to them. I find that sort of, <laughs> and, and the idea that somehow government is a benign caretaker of these things, right, as opposed to broader society, and needs to impose that on these these uh, platforms specifically, is it, it's pretty troubling because there are there are mechanisms which, if people are patient these things get get regulated through. If, if people are defaming people on the internet, you can sue them. And I've seen people take small civil actions against somebody for calling them a racist or something, and they get a pretty quick for, you know, for a $300 letter from their lawyer, they get a pretty quick $1,000 and, uh, and a public apology, right? So you can defend yourself on there. But I think what the, one of the conclusions I'm coming to is, on this is that the greater threat to democracy when we're talking about it 
And it's not that there isn't one from people spreading lies and spreading rumors and, and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of threats to democracy, if you want to put it that way. But the greater threat to democracy is not from those who are misusing it by behaving irresponsibly. It might very well be from those who wish to, su to suppress speech, right? The people who are currently have the angel's halo on their head and have claimed the moral high ground. Um, you know, it's, they're treading into a very, very dangerous area. Yeah, can I just ask you a quick fact check question? Are you sure about that thing with the Presbyterians and the sticks? <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I was under a different impression, but do you, have you, like, do you actually have documentation on that? Or, because I'll have to be more careful. <laughs> well, okay, stone throwing, maybe, I don't know. Okay. But, <laughs> but you, uh, I mean, you get my point. And in terms of the CRTC with these things, even the CRTC, the CRTC as a regulator, um, when it comes to speech and those sorts of things, it's, it's trying to make sure it's in compliance with the Broadcasting Act, which says that licensed broadcasting must be of good standard is the phrase in the Broadcasting Act. The CRTC itself was uncomfortable with being, you know, the uh, uh, adjudicator of what good standard might be uh, in all cases. So a body was created called the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council, which is uh, uh, an industry body. It generally governs that. And the process is if you have a complaint about something that was said on air or something that was played on air, you take it up with the, you must first take it up with the local radio station, which offended you. If you can't find satisfaction there, you can then take your complaint to the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council and they deal with things there. You may still then appeal, except in the case of the CBC, that decision to the CRTC, but that rarely occurs. The only case I remember is when there was, this was based on a single complaint from a woman in Newfoundland regarding a radio station that had played the Dire Straits song, Money for Nothing, in its original version, in which, uh, and as you recall, the song is, uh, is, is satire, largely, um, about uh, you know, a couple working guys watching MTV and seeing all these rock stars on there and you know, that's the way you do it, your money for nothing and your chicks for free. And there's a reference to one of the guitar players in which a homophobic slur is used, um, which in, I mean, the, the, the music has, Dire Straits has since redone the song to, to remove, to remove that, that word. But this was the, this was the, the, the complaint and the, the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council banned the playing of the song, right? Uh, this caused quite a bit of public outrage, rightfully so in my view, and uh, it went to the CRTC, but then conversations took place and the CBSC kind of reversed its decision and just sort of said, be careful about how, you know, some of these things that were okay 30 years ago aren't quite so okay and that sort of stuff. And I think most of the radio stations just switched uh, to the dire, dire straits basically switch to a, 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 a redone version of the song. No, I mean, that's kind of okay. It's civil society working together and sort of saying, well, we can still d express this and that sort of stuff. Very bad words are used in a lot of rap music, which seems to go without complaint, but that's basically the way that's handled and has been managed for years without 
I think, un, in any undue fashion, suppressing any opinion. It manages the way in which you may express your opinion to a certain extent. But again, you're using a publicly owned asset, Spectrum, for a commercial purpose. And in exchange for that, you agree to those terms and conditions or you don't. You're, you're free to do either way. Yeah, I mean, in, in that song that you're referring to, like I was always stunned that, you know, there's that line, what's that, Hawaiian noises banging on a bong bongos like a chimpanzee? I was always afraid that the Dawn Home Memorial Society didn't come over <laughs> the fence with pitchforks. But I, I guess it's whatever's fashionable, right, or whatever. whatever. Well, I mean, there's, there's a... It's the, it's the insensitivity of people, the assumption of malice on the part of so many people that... I mean, John Cleese complains about this and, and, and other, uh, other, other comedians do. It's like, it's impossible to tell a joke anymore. Like, does, does anybody, you know, and it's not that there weren't a lot of jokes that were kind of inappropriate. You know, we've always sort of, I think we've all been like in that room or at that table where there's some guy who's kind of behind the times who says, hey, I, let me tell you about this joke. You know, like there was an Italian and a blah, 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 blah. And, and everybody's kind of looking at him like, Oh my goodness! Yeah. I'm, I'm, the, I'm generally the guy at the table, <laughs> but anyway. But 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 you know, but that's just social fashion in in that sort of sense. Nobody's nobody's going to take the guy out and 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 take his job away, right? And this is what happens now: is 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 is, is you know, or or, or you know, people might say, "Hey, dude, I think that was a little inappropriate," you know, or. Oh man, you you know you can't tell that you don't do that stuff anymore or something or, or you know the woman at the table, you know it's you know it's somebody somebody tells a body joke and she you know takes offense. I mean they always have those things have always occurred. I don't think any of that is new, right? And and, the, and that's governed by social fashion. It's not governed by the government though, and it's not governed by these swarming mobs. I mean in the the piece you just wrote for Convivium, I mean there's there's a there's a very good point in that to a certain extent I mean there is a difference um, but there are similarities that should be noted between um, the violent and incoherence of a mob storming the US Capitol right the the the, the, the center and, and Washington is such an imperial city it's it's almost you know it's, this is like the sack of Rome um, in, in in a sense and that's hideous and violent and out of control. And yet, day after day, uh, on social media, mobs form and swarm people, right? And some people survive, like the Covington kids did from that and the, the media hysteria that goes up around it. But some don't, right? Some don't at all, right? They're, they're, and, and that's a really dangerous thing because real harm is being done to people um, for, I'm not sure what purpose, yeah. because people disagree with what they said, you know? Um, yeah, or, one of the things that they propose, um, and I, I, you know, your reference to the, the woman in Newfoundland and um, the, the Dire Straits song, um, they propose an e-tribunal to facilitate and expedite dispute resolution and a process for addressing complaints swiftly and lightly before they become disputes. I'm not how you, sure how you resolve a dispute before it becomes a dispute, but anyway, good effort, on, I guess, to try. Um, but 
in your experience, and you know, off that example or, or, or others that you might be familiar with, I mean, how possible is it to be swift and light in dealing with these things? I th I, my memory is that particular one took a very long time to resolve. It isn't, and, and that one took probably two years um, at least. So any sort of regulatory process, if you were going to, you know, um, run it in accordance with our uh, our history and our adherence to core principles of fairness and justice in terms of that, it takes time. So Facebook, for instance, and, 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 and Twitter and, and, and other social media, um, Facebook has a sort of tribunal. It's got a it's got a, a group set up now that deals with complaints and deals with disputes. But it is, I mean, you you can't do it if the if the if the intent of this is to deal with things swiftly. <laughs> the idea that you've got this tribunal sitting there passing quick judgment before understanding context, before understanding meaning, before understanding you know, place and time and intent and all those other sorts of things that, that mitigate our speech. I mean, there are things that you can say in one situation that sound, and you can use the exact same phrase in another situation, and it sounds very different, right? And you have to, it's just the establishing of the facts takes a long time. The other thing, the other thing that this government intervention in this creates is like, the big tech companies right now, they, they want to be regulated because they want to have a, a set of rules that everybody can follow and know. But the other thing it does is it entrenches their growing monopoly because it doesn't allow anybody else to start up. I've never been on Parler. I've heard of it and I, I know people who did use it because they felt uh, they, they wanted to have a place of complete free expression. but. It's been wiped out, and it was wiped out by Google and big tech, not by the government, but just, you know, because if you're going to compete now, you have to have your own server. You have to have a, you have to build your own facilities and that sort of stuff now. But the government, by regulating and basically Facebook or something, which, I mean, after all, is intended to be sharing pictures of grandchildren mostly, but... It, it it entrenches them in that position, and it doesn't, and it won't allow room for people to have an alternative format. Yeah. It's interesting that alternative site that you referred to. I thought it was Parlay, <laughs> because I thought like Parlor that that's where my granny used to sit in a, in a rocking chair. Like why, why would anybody call it that? But, but it does show you when when you're talking about context and understanding what words mean. Uh, and like we we actually have to agree on what the pronunciation is first, right? Like, or we have to be aware of, of what the, what the, what the name is. But you see what I'm saying? Like that, in order to get in, as you say, to actually get into the necessary context of what's said, you have to actually understand how people understood it, right? You can't, you can't just swiftly and lightly decide. Oh yes, you're right. Right. Well, and the other thing, the, the other thing that's, that 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 happens with these swar this swarming, is it. The swarmers appear to be very well organized and have, have figured out a, a pretty good way of going about this. Let's take the Edmonton football team. And they're in the process of changing their name from their historic name, which was the Edmonton Eskimos, which is a word, it's an Algonquin word, 
it's not a colonialist word um, in, 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 that, in that sense. It's not something that's been posed on people. Anyway, the operators of that football team spent a great deal of time consulting with the Inuit people about the use of that word and its association with their football team and whether or not they found it offensive. And at the end of that process, it was concluded that the Inuit people, who are a noble, fierce people with a great tradition of surviving against all odds, and that took pride in generally, not everybody, of course, but generally took pride in the association. And they were pleased to have that name associated with them, even as they transitioned to a, a more modern terminology for, for uh, that they want people to use and that sort of stuff. But, and maybe it's a generational thing and older people with things like that. But the final decision the team made to change its name didn't come from people pressuring the football team. It came from people pressuring their corporate sponsors, right? And their corporate sponsors finally approaching them and saying, look guys, we can't afford to be associated with you anymore as long as the name is controversial. And the name was only controversial for a minority of people. So often these decisions are made because those seeking change, they attack the sponsors, they attack the advertisers, they attack the commercial purpose, the, the, the commercial framework of, 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 of the company and, and try to impose change that way. And, and the operators of the companies, the CEOs, for instance, they have no moral view on this one way or the other. They have, they have no opinion on whether or not the name that the football team calls, it, calls itself is appropriate or inappropriate. They don't care. All they care about is that the problem goes away. Yeah. So the easiest thing for them to do is to agree with the people who are petitioning them for change and enforce the change, whether it's a democratically arrived at change or an undemocratic democratically arrived at change. I think there's some argument that can be made that in some cases there's a majority view that says it's time for change, in which case change takes place sort of naturally, and that's sort of history, and it's, it's our past and it's our future. But when it's undemocratically imposed, it's done by these, it, these intense, passionate, you know, ideological groups who are completely convinced that their truth is the only truth, right? And because they're convinced that their truth is the only truth, that's the only way democracy can be saved, is by their truth trampling on all others who pretend to have any truth at all, right? So any view that threatens our truth is hate speech, and it must be suppressed for democracy to survive. Good heavens, I mean, think that through, right? I mean, this is, this is the French Revolution, uh, it, you know, happening virtually. This is, this is the, the Russian Revolution and, and that sort of stuff where, you know, there is just one truth. There's only one way of acceptable thinking. It's worse than that. There's only one way of thinking that will be tolerated. It's beyond being acceptable that, that will be tolerated. So it, that's how I'm coming to the, to, to, to the view that it's as, as disgusting as, as many of the things that occur 
in terms of public expression, as disgusting as I might find them, that only disgusts me. And I can fight back against that, and I can argue against that for the rest of my life. But if I'm not free to argue, <laughs> right, if, if, you, if you force that view out of the public square, the view doesn't go away. It, yeah. it just goes someplace else where you can't find it and you can't, tack, can't attack it and you can't sort it out. It, it's and, very, very dangerous. And that makes you, the, the, the commission's call for a, a transparency commission pretty murky right from the start, doesn't it? I mean, what, you, what you've just outlined, what you've just described is an incredibly complicated, interwoven political process to, to expect to get some, people have transparency goggles on that they're going to be immediately able to see through that. It's a bit, bit far-fetched, isn't it? And I would ask you in, in terms of, again, your, your experience with commissions sitting around hearing tables trying to figure out what the right story is here. It's just at a very practical level, a very complicated process, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it brings all kinds of things into play that in which people should have proper representation and, you know, legal counsel. I mean, if your rights are going to be suppressed, I mean, there should be some sort of due process involved in that, right? I mean, we're not talking about privileges. We're talking about rights. And the idea that something like that could be held up by the courts seems remarkable. But if you can't do it that way, you kind of put enough pressure on to force the social media companies to do it for you. But there's some there's an interesting thing going on just this week in India. The government is changing uh, rules uh, regarding farming and agriculture, which has a lot of farmers upset. There's even, I've even seen posters here in Saskatchewan from... Uh, uh, people with connections to uh, to India, you know, uh, there was actually a demonstration here recently uh, uh, in Canada asking the government to talk to the Indian government about uh, its actions against farmers. Anyway, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was about 250. The Indian government ordered Twitter to shut down 250 accounts because they wanted them shut down, near as I can tell. And Twitter did shut them down, and then Twitter kind of thought about it and opened them back up. And the last thing I read was the government was ordering Twitter to shut them down again, right? And I, Twitter was caught in this, wait a second, these people get to express their democratic point of view and the government is saying, no, they don't. This, this is dangerous. And the government is saying it was an issue of sovereignty and security and that sort of stuff. And governments can always use those things. Maybe it could be, in, you know, maybe it's in the interest of public health, I don't know. But the government, it's kind of like governments shutting down TV stations or ordering radio stations to stop broadcasting or ordering a newspaper not to publish. These, these sorts of actions, even 20 years ago, would have been considered horrific impositions of the state into areas that should be free. So you're starting to see that pattern. Yeah. You, you, you know, to pick up on your revolutionary uh, analogy, I mean, I've always said, you know, there's a reason that the first thing the rebels do is go for the radio station. I mean, it, yeah. no, it's kind of obvious. Any successful coup d'etat, that's the first thing you take is the radio station. For, and the, yeah. Yeah. But I, I wanted to just loop back a little bit to what you were talking about, that, that commercial economic pressure or uh, capacity to, to move things, make, make, make the language be what 
what we want it to be or the expression be what we want it to be. And there's a there's a kind of flip side to that as well. And it was captured. There was a senator from Nebraska um, came across. He had a column in the Wall Street Journal. And I, I just I thought, you know, this is something that everybody should be thinking about. He, he asked the question or he, he actually said we should be asking the question of the New York Times, what its algorithms tell it about monetizing anger. And, and I, th I thought that phrase, monetizing anger, is so apropos and so important to this, this discussion and this debate because people are making a lot of money off this. And as you said earlier, it's the, the guys with the, the angels' halos on are among those making a lot of money off it, aren't they? they there, there is lucre to be had from manipulating emotions. And it's not just Facebook. It's not just Twitter. It's the good guys, in quotation marks, who are doing it too. When, when you were at the CRTC or in, the, in your newspaper career, in, in the, the, the role that you've played as someone who's had to arbitrate expression, uh, speech, opinion, and so on, how does that break down? I mean, how do you call out the, this, this quote-unquote good guys who are equally engaged in this. Well, that's, that's interesting. I was, I was reading a paper uh, yesterday from, from an institute in Switzerland that was doing an analysis on COVID, for instance, and negative news was five and a half times more likely to get a headline than positive. I can't remember the percentage, but like overwhelming, there were, there were far, far more stories about Donald Trump and that hydrochloric or whatever it is, uh, drug he was talking about than there ever were about scientists creating vaccines. And the argument was being made was that media themselves thrive on negativity and they thrive on, on, on controversy. And I think that's true and I think that's, that's always been the case. Whether it was actually in their own best interest to um, do so or to overdo it, I think in, in, upon reflection is questionable. The, the need to be sensational, I, I, in, re, you know, in review, I think it probably does more harm than good to the, to the newspapers and the media themselves, but it's an embedded practice within media, so, so they do it. So yeah, um, and as, as technology has evolved, journalists have been encouraged in many cases, not all, to be online and active on Twitter and to drive audiences on there to their content, which in turn allows their employer to make money. And so in, in a day when journalists are fighting for their jobs, the more controversial you can be on Twitter, the more you can point to something and saying, this is outrageous, read this, um, the more commercially successful you are, right? So it's practices like that, maybe some of the algorithmic practices in terms of that, that uh, you know, that are problematic. But um, and and I, and I think there's some, I think there's some sensible things that can be done with media and that in in terms of how algorithms can be manipulated and that sort of stuff. If you want to talk about regulation, uh, I think that's you know people should be able to opt out of having uh, algorithms apply to their, their feed and that sort of stuff. I think there's some sensible things that can be done there that increase freedom rather, rather than reducing it. But media are a real problem in all of this <laughs> because they are driving the idea in many cases that, that speech should be suppressed. And it's, it's, I find it, 
it's like, it just guts me to see that. Like as a former newspaper person, when it was all about freedom of expression. And, you know, Peter Stockland might write a column from time to time that when I was editor or Catherine Ford would write one from time to time. And I would spend all day answering phone calls about it, right? So the public response would be, but we still would stand by the story. We would still stand by people's right to express that opinion. I mean, everybody did. Right and left, even the newsroom, uh, people would mutter about what Stockland wrote yesterday or what Ford wrote about and that sort of stuff. But nobody ever thought for a minute about them not being able to express their opinion. There might be things back and forth with the editor about how you said it and make sure you say it in a way that's going to be persuasive and not inflame people and that sort of stuff. Those are appropriate. But newspapers and media would always stand by that these days. It's like, meh, you know, like <laughs> there's, there's an assault on their own freedom to publish or not publish, and they don't seem to care. Yeah, a measure of that was, I remember years ago, um, there was a bus billboard campaign that some very clever person came up with at the Herald when we worked there, Calgary Herald, when we worked there together. For both Catherine Ford and I, um, you'll swear by their columns. And, and that, yeah. was, that was thought to be a good thing. That was a celebrated thing. And, and that actually leads to the last question I wanted to ask you. And it's about the emergence of this idea of false balance, that, that you don't have to, to present both sides of a story or all sides of a story, multiple sides of a story, because we know which sides of the story are true. You don't have to <laughs> present the story uh, of people who actually criticize the idea of global of global warming or uh, climate change, for example, or people who are critical of now it's COVID. I mean, there are any any number of them. And I remember, you know, again years ago, but you had that story about the the reporter who came to you, and you questioned like, why are we reporting this? And he said, well, he said it. Can, can you just tell, do you remember that story? Uh, just, just tell that. About oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, was, uh, I was a federal election. Uh, I, was the, I was in charge of the election coverage for, for that. And the, the reporter, the local reporter assigned to cover the federal election came in and he said, hey, boss, I got this great story. So-and-so just said such-and-such -such about so-and-so. And I looked at him and I said, is it true? And he kind of looked back at me like, well, he said it. And I said, well, find out if it's true or not. If it's true, you've got a hell of a story. If it's not, you've got a brief. And, and he looked so puzzled because he was so excited because somebody had said something bad about somebody else and that was going to be the story. But the thing is, you know, dude, you're, you're, you're a journalist. Your job is to find out what's true, right? Um, just because he said it doesn't mean it's true. So but if he said it, he said and, it. Right? And, it does and so, mean he said it, but yeah. your job is to find out whether it's a lie or whether it's true. Yeah, and you can right? still report that he said it um, because yes. he did say it, and that is a, that's what we call a fact. <laughs> but but it's not just a fact that we have to report blindly. Um, right. But yeah. for instance, I mean, recently you hear all the time on. Uh, I mean, I listen to the radio quite a bit, radio news, and and that sort of stuff. But you will hear and you will read it saying. Donald Trump said this, but there is no evidence to support that, you know, election fraud allegation. Now, it, 
it's become inserted into that narrative, but it is not inserted into other narratives. Mm -hmm. So, and that's because, why? Which goes into your, which goes into that sort of false equivalency argument. I read that from somebody in the Washington Post and I, I, I just, you know, buried my head in my hands because I've had this discussion over the years with reporters. I recently had one with a, a former uh, newsroom employee at the, at the Calgary Herald, and he was making that argument. And, and the Washington Post editor's piece who I read, she was making that argument. She said, the reason Donald Trump got elected is because we didn't do our job. And our job was to not let his side be spoken because we were because because we we because we made this mistake of balance of this side versus that side that's what allowed him to get forward if we hadn't made that mistake it never would have happened and she's completely ignorant of the fact i mean there there is something there but she's completely ignorant of the fact that it was <laughs> it was their imbalance right and the lack of trust that people had in them because of it that allowed Donald Trump to succeed with a narrative, with, with a campaign that clearly attacked media for, the, for, their, for the exact practice that she wishes to uphold, right? I mean, th there is something in there, like I used to, I used to <laughs> journalistically, I'd, you know, I used to say like, you know, I mean, you gotta be realistic. If, 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 if somebody comes in like that reporter, if somebody comes in and says, Hey, so and so just said the moon is made of blue, of blue cheese, right? You don't balance that with a counterpoint that says that's not true. You find somebody who says the moon is actually made of green cheese, right? <laughs> you just end up with a story that's gibberish where both sides are telling lies, and you know, and it's your job as a journalist to actually dig into that and and find out if there's some truth to it, right? But the idea, this idea that 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 we own the truth, right? There is only one side, one set of truth. I mean, that, that has ended badly throughout history. <laughs> like it, there is such a long track record of people saying, I own the truth, right? And because I own the truth, I am going to, I'm going to slaughter all of you. I'm going to either you adhere to my truth or I'm going to burn you at the stake or I'm going to torture you or I'm, I'm going to, you dehumanize the other side when you, when, you, when you take them as people who don't own the truth, right? I mean, the, the way you address these things, it's, I was reminded of uh, this in a, I wrote something about this recently, but it, I'd heard it, this fellow on the radio and, and he, it was about vaccinations and, and he's been following this and, and, and false news and, you know, uh, uh, people being misinformed for years. And he's talking about, he was talking about trying to convince people. And a lot of people get very nervous about having their, especially infants, vaccinated, right? Because they're very protective. And, they, you know, they've heard something somewhere from somebody who said somebody got sick once from taking a vaccine. And anyway, the guy said, the, the way you approach this isn't to shame them. It isn't to confront them, right? It's to speak to them respectfully, right? So where you find people who are anti-vaxxers or anti-maskers or something like that, calling them idiots, 
calling them racist, calling anybody you disagree with, even if you think that way, is not going to change their mind. It's not going to make for a better, more cohesive, sharing, respectful society. Like his view on this with vaccinations, and I see no right idea why it wouldn't apply to others. He said, you talk to people respectfully. You say, hey, I understand how you come to think that. Tell me a bit more about it. And you talk through it and you say, okay, well, here's this and that sort of stuff. And, you know, not everybody follows along, but, you know, like he said, that's the successful way to, um, to overcome these, this ignorance, I guess you'd, you'd, you'd want to call it. But this, this idea that media think that they are the sole owners of the truth, that is not their job at all. You're just a propaganda sheet when you become that. You'd become Pravda. It, I, I find it just disgusting, and it is, and it, and it is, frankly, commercially suicidal. In the uh, in the popular conception, at least, this concept of false balance kind of reminds me of what did Galileo in, you know. <laughs> well, of course, there, there's you in that crank Copernicus, and you're the only ones that believe this. Why should we listen to you? Uh, but, but as you're saying, the answer to that is not to, to put together a truth commission run by federal bureaucrats. It's to actually talk to your fellow citizens and say, you know, I, I, I don't really like your police work there, Lou. Uh, I, I think you might want to investigate that one again, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's responsible citizenship. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah. You go back and say, take another look at that. You know, like I've had this you know, discussions with friends on social media who come through. I mean, one of the most popular things going around for many months was uh, uh, Trudeau's COVID camps, right? That there were RFPs put out, that the government was setting up large concentration camps in which it was going to inter, you know, people with COVID or people suspected of having COVID and that sort of stuff. And I mean, when, the, when people first came back on their planes from China, they were kept in a, in a facility for two weeks to do their quarantine and that, but this one was taken. So, I mean, that's where it starts, but then it becomes, we're all going to be get rounded up by the government, right? And it's kind of like, you have to go back to people and say, can you send me the link to that? You know, like, that can't be true. How is that true? And then you just have that discussion. They say, well, I heard it on, you know, like I heard it on the internet. <laughs> well, of course it's true then, right? Like. I mean, gosh, you know, but it's like, where did you get it? Like, check, check back, right? And there's nothing wrong with being skeptical. There's nothing wrong with people suspecting things. I mean, being vigilant in the pursuit of freedom is, is not a sin, and it's something people should always do. But being intelligent in your vigilance is, is like, super important. But there are things like the global warming and, and that sort of stuff. But the, the whole, the history of not just philosophy and political opinion, but of science shows that, I mean, science is never shuts down inquiry. Real science never shuts down inquiry. It's always trying to learn more, right? I mean, 25 years ago, people thought T-Rexes could stand in a certain position and they thought they could move at a certain speed. And now they have different points of view on that because they've learned more stuff. So if you shut down challenges and you shut down dissent and you shut down minority opinions, you stagnate. 
And I mean, you can see that in the history of certain religions when they when they stopped debating the theology around things, they they stultified and people finally settled and said, okay, this is the truth. This is it. This is it. This is it. Absolutely it. It will never change. The creativity in those societies stopped too, right? <laughs> the political development, the arts, the sciences, all those sorts of things can, can stop as well. So, I mean, the it, beauty of dissent is that it instills progress. Yeah. It seems to me, in a sense, what you're saying, if I can just restate it in my own words, is that this is really a problem of language, not a problem of regulation. That, that you have to believe when you speak that it's possible to pursue the truth. You may not obtain it, but it's possible and necessary and even responsible as both a human being and as a citizen to pursue it. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's everybody's job to be, to say, ask questions like why, <laughs> you know, who, when, how do you know that? Um, all those sorts of things. And, but the, if, you, if you take a point of view that you are, that asking the question is some form of heresy, and you set up a board of inquisitors to examine these heresies, right? We're essentially back to the point where we're trying to figure out whether you're a witch if you sink or whether you're a witch if you float, right? I mean, that's the level of sophistication that I think this is at. It's all dressed up as whatever, you know, the Canadian Democratic Coalition, this or that sort of stuff. But I mean, please, it's... It's, it's not that. And like I said, it's not to deny that there aren't real problems with human behavior and that harm isn't done, but our definition of harm has to be dealt with too because currently a lot of it is, well, that hurt my feelings. And, and I was offended that you used that word. Fine. I'm offended. The news comes on at 6 o'clock every morning. By 10 after 6, I've been offended five or six times. Um, but I was raised differently, I guess. Thank you so much, uh, Peter, for joining WordWork. I will say I am going to follow up on that, your claim about the Presbyterians and the sticks. But, but other than that, uh, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure having you on. Thanks. Thanks very much for, uh, for taking the time to join. It's a pleasure. Just Google Covenant Tears. I don't think it says that. <laughs>